During the current crisis unfolding in Myanmar, events are happening so fast, it can feel challenging just to keep up with them. And we're working to increase our podcast production to stay abreast of this ever-changing crisis. Besides our podcasts, we encourage you to check out the blogs on our website, insightmyanmar.org, where you can also sign up for the regular newsletter. You can follow our social media as well. Just look for Insight Myanmar on your preferred platform. With that, let's head into our show. Put to death for standing up against a military coup. 1st of February 2021, the day Myanmar's transition to democracy came to a halt. Myanmar's ruling junta announced Monday that it had executed four pro-democracy activists. White-scale election fraud was the reason generals used to justify taking back control. Their deaths, the country's first executions in decades, were met with swift condemnation from international human rights organizations. This is clearly a signal to the Myanmar people from the junta. Claim denied by the election commission. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Hi. Thanks for reaching out to me. Yeah, so you're uh, you're a Burmese living in France. You've been there for some time and yes. have actually, in, before now, served as a diplomat there. So can you tell us a bit about how you first came to France and the role and the capacity you served and what you were doing there when you first arrived? Oh, Okay. Uh, because uh, I happen to be the liaison officer between uh, France and Myanmar, so it that is the reason why I had the chance to come to Myanmar, to France. But uh, then I was living um, mainly in Myanmar, but I had, of course, uh, some time uh, passed in France at that time. Right. Um, and, uh, and so can you tell us a bit about the early days of when, when, um, how you, how you were able to get the post you did, the, the, the diplomatic post in which you were serving and what you were doing in, in that capacity? Oh, uh, it started from the, uh, Burma Socialist Program Party days. And, uh, it was the time that, uh, 
we had to go through uh, many procedures, especially uh, for the uh, <coughs> diplomats through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And uh, we need someone who knows about the country where the diplomatic mission is assigned and also the other uh, part of the <coughs> country where the mission, the diplomatic mission comes from. So as I speak both languages and uh, as I have uh, <coughs> passed many experiences through my family uh, ties and from through my parents' uh, connections as well, I applied for the post and uh, I got it. It is mostly, uh, if I may continue, it is not only for the administration, not only for the diplomatic uh, relations, but the hidden uh, agenda is through the political uh, connaissance, which means uh, how you know about the political situation. Tell us more about that. Okay, uh, during the Burma uh, Socialist Program Party time, um, I had spent only one year or two years before the military coup in 1988. So it was not very remarkable compared to after 1988 events because we were under the first military coup since 1962 and uh, the restrictions were very rigid and um, as you may have heard of those days that a foreigner were, would be given only seven days visa to come to Myanmar and uh, everything is under red tape. And uh, it lasted for, when I joined the embassy, it lasted for about a year, over a year. And then all of a sudden, the 1988 coup happened. And it changed another uh, direction towards the uh, diplomatic relations, how the uh, embassies uh, react to the, the then uh, situation. And uh, the political detainees uh, at the time, how they were uh, supported by the international community. Mm, and remind us, what year was it that you joined the diplomatic corps in Myanmar? End of 1986. Okay, so you were a diplomat basically for two years before 88. And at that time, 86 to 88, Myanmar was not mm -hmm. really on anyone's radar anywhere. No, it was no. a lot of things happening in, in silence and without a lot of attention. And no. then 1988 to 1990 hits. And can you tell us where you were during those years, 88 to 90, and how being a diplomat representing Myanmar affected uh, those events going forward? Okay. Um, I would be honest about my reactions then. In fact, I was mostly uh, biased about uh, having the political detainees released as soon as possible uh, through the uh, diplomatic pressure. And I was mostly working on it. Because at that time, uh, unlike the uh, 2021 uh, military coup and the aftermath of 2021 uh, military coup, <clears throat> the world has been silent 
and, igno- and uh, ignoring about the um, the uh, sufferings borne by the Myanmar people. But uh, in 1988, the whole world turned their attention towards Myanmar, and uh, it was very helpful and very effective for me uh, to work <clears throat> through the uh, diplomatic relations and uh, putting on the pressure on to the um, to the voice of the international uh, community to release the detainees and uh, to speak about, uh, to speak up about Myanmar Mm-hmm. And where were you at that time? Were you actually in France between 88 and 90? Yes, yes. No, in Myanmar. So tell us a yes. bit more than what that role was, what how you were appointed in that role, and what you were responsible or even allowed to do in that role as liaison. Uh, in fact, uh, the role was uh, to uh, perform the... Uh, smooth relations between the two countries within the official framework laid down by so many uh, protocol procedures and other diplomatic uh, procedures. But within that uh, limited framework, if you know how to play uh, from the safe uh, safe side, I mean, uh, safe, how do you, if you know how to play it safely, then uh, you can achieve a certain uh, goals from your own aspect. Like, I would be uh, giving advice to the uh, French author- French authorities through the uh, <clears throat> diplomatic channel. Uh, who who to contact to who to or which side to give to, uh, to which side to give more pressure to things like that. Mm, and to give to, to further illustrate or put in people's minds exactly what you were doing, what those years was like, eighty-eight to ninety, is mm-hmm. can you recall any specific anecdotes or experiences or interactions that would be able to further illustrate the role that you were playing, as well as the type of conversations that was having that time between Myanmar and other Western countries? Okay, uh, <clears throat> Myanmar was uh, under the uh, military uh, occupation, of course. But uh, they started uh, arresting the political uh, parties, uh, leaders, as, uh, <coughs> including Dong San Suu Kyi, U Chi Maun, U Ting U, and all the uh, <coughs> prominent leaders. And uh, you may notice that some uh, journalists uh, went into exile and some uh, students went into the jungle to form their groups. They went to Thailand, they went to India, they went to America, and so on. So, <clears throat> the international community, especially the Western group, uh, and uh, allied countries like UK, US, and uh, France, uh, <clears throat> would work out on protecting these people and uh, uh, if they are in the in the in detention they would cry out for the uh, release of these people as soon as possible but 
it doesn't um, just by crying out for the release of the those people would not serve. So we started looking for the EU uh, visa ban and uh, travel ban and uh, economy ban on certain people and certain enterprises. It started with uh, EU, I think. And uh, we would have a um, regular uh, update of lists of people that could be banned under the regulations. It is to retaliate uh, and to stop the further um, economic development of those people and to to punish them in a way, I would say. It is not from, it is not uh, right after 1988, but uh -huh. it, uh, I, cannot uh, recall the years exactly, but it gradually happened that way. Mm, and at this time, you were in an official position and the actions you were taking, I'm not sure if this was above board or perhaps in secret and so, so not known, but mm -hmm. you're actually taking actions which are mm -hmm. penalizing people in the military regime. Mm -hmm. Did, were you, did you ever feel unsafe or, or threatened or, or at uh, risk at this time? Of course, we. I have been watched. Uh, I have been uh, under the surveillance and uh, under the watchful eyes of the military intelligence and uh, through the... I, I'm sure they have the um, uh, list in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Myanmar Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, they formally ask who are working uh, with the uh, diplomatic missions. And uh, we have to submit... The, the the diplomatic missions had to submit a list of uh, local people who are in connection with the or who are under the diplomatic missions to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, every uh, three or four months, and they would update it, including the drivers, gardeners, uh, housemates, every everyone. So <clears throat> it was uh, tightly controlled, and uh, even when I move about. They would be, I know that they would be following me, but I don't, I, until today, I didn't know why I was not arrested or I don't really uh, understand at all. But uh, sometimes they would be watching at me uh, when I come to the, uh, when I come to the embassy, uh, they would be sitting at the gate and looking at me. And when I go to certain places like uh, NLD headquarters or to to the uh, NLD party members' houses, there would be informers and they would be taking pictures of me. Mm. But at the time, I think uh, they are more focused on the uh, people from the American embassy. Right, then you were more connected with the French embassy. Yeah, so the French... The, the French are not as uh, severely um, hated, I would say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because uh, because uh, in the newspapers at that time, they would be uh, writing 
uh, scornful uh, articles on uh, US and UK because of the and, and that uh, that was especially because of the uh, radio uh, services like VOA and BBC they would say a sky full of lies mm-hmm. VOA, uh, VOA and BBC but um, and but for France because of the language uh, barrier mm-hmm. they may not know what we are saying or what we are uh, uh, <coughs> publishing Right. And mm. these were the days before Google Translate, so they couldn't yes, just exactly. uh, put it in the computer and see, right? <laughs> yes, so um, yes. I think that's an interesting segue for trying to under better understand the French response to Myanmar mm-hmm. over the years. I think, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. there's a lot of attention paid to on the American and British side for various mm-hmm. reasons. And uh, I think that does open up a question of what within the French government, with, with the French press, the French people, how mm-hmm. have been someone as yourself who's been a bridge uh, over the course of your lifetime between these two cultures? How yes. have how would you characterize uh, going back from really 1986 through 88 to, to 90 through the transition period and then to today? I know this is a, a very big question, but to give us an overview from your early experiences of, of going to France, meeting high people in French government, mm-hmm. uh, French society, how would you characterize the relationship and the, 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 the perspective um, from France of Myanmar? Oh, at that time, I would say uh, France is a very uh, hospitable and uh, welcoming to us. Uh, and uh, they are real... Uh, supporters of the democracy, uh, democratic transition in Myanmar. And uh, that is one of the reasons why uh, Dong San Suu Kyi herself came to France after her release. And uh, she had been given uh, uh, honorable uh, titles like uh, Légion d'honneur and so on. Mm. But uh, they, they had been very uh, steady uh, supporters from 1988 to 2016-17. Uh, uh, but uh, when uh, Dong San Suu Kyi went to ICJ uh, to justify in front of the court about the Rohingya, I think it was a failure um, for us. For us means uh, for Myanmar. And uh, it turned out to, to be unfavorable for the Western uh, bloc <clears throat> to support Myanmar. Because whenever, when I am, now I'm in France, and whenever mm. I talk about Myanmar, what they would uh, have as the first uh, impression is that, oh, Myanmar means Aung San Suu Kyi, who is not kind to Rohingya. That's mm. it. And they don't want to hear any more about it. That mm. is the, the reaction we are facing. And it is uh, it is negative uh, impact for <clears throat> Myanmar people, even though they may be uh, issuing statements and so on, uh, that they uh, condemn uh, the military brutality and so on. But it is only on the paper. But in the past, from 1988 to 2011-12, it was substantial. Their support was substantial, not only releasing uh, statements on the paper, mm-hmm. but with my participation, I would. I'm very proud to say that <clears throat> the, the their support was very substantial. 
And after Aung San Suu Kyi's visit defending the military's action, you found that that substantial support, in your words, was not seen after that point. No, no, India exists. No, 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 no. <clears throat> and uh, it is true that uh, they, their media would uh, release news on Myanmar and they would talk about Myanmar for first one or two months after the coup in in 2021 and after that they kept totally silent and whenever i meet people here whenever i talk about the uh, up-to-date news of myanmar the local people would be so surprised oh is that so because uh, we heard uh, in the beginning uh, about myanmar and then we we lost uh, <clears throat> track of what's happening in your country this is this is the actual response I get here, mm-hmm. but the authorities uh, in the uh, in the French government, of course, they know it. Mm, right, it was that fateful decision by Aung San Suu Kyi to come and uh, defend the military's actions against the Rohingya. Mm-hmm. So, given that that decision was so fateful and so impactful, and really you could say so devastating for what it's done to erode support, not just for her, but for the country in general, do you have any sense or theory why she chose to do that? Uh, I would understand. I would. Uh, I could understand her situation at that time, because she was uh, torn between uh, two poles. That is uh, the military and her victory and her potential victory in twenty twenty election. Because at that time, the entire uh, population in Myanmar is also uh, not very welcoming uh, to the Rohingya ethnicity uh, to be included in uh, Myanmar um, population. And and, uh, mainstream of the uh, Myanmar people's uh, uh, concept about the Rohingya ethnicity, then she would have failed in a in her forthcoming election because the general population is not favorable to Rohingya. This is my sentiment, my personal sentiment. And another thing is she could even lose votes from the military uh, camps. This is the first time that the military personnel were able to vote outside of the military camps. And uh, she could have uh, made a drastic uh, um, difference if she had said we have to accept Rohingya as our ethnic uh, ethnic people. So she had no choice. And at the other, and on the other hand, we have heard rumors like the coup could be staged during her absence from Myanmar while she is testifying in The Hague. And she was uh, like uh, threatened by the military at the time. And she had all the time tried to uh, coax military in her own uh, intellectual way, but it didn't work because she had 
trained. She had uh, uh, asked that the military personnel be trained for civil-military relationship and uh, how uh, the military should stay away from the civil administration for years from 19 uh, so, sorry from 2013 to 2017 through the help of the uh, British Military Academy hmm. right so whatever she was attempting to do was ultimately not successful in your no, perspective no no Right. Now, looking at the current situation in Myanmar and looking at the ties between France and Myanmar, the one thing that strikes out, which I'd like to get your perspective on, as well as how it's being covered in France and if it's being covered at all, is the role of Total. Oh, uh, yes. Can you, can you <laughs> first give some background on what Total is and what their interest is in Myanmar? Oh, Total is... Um is the revenue-generating company for France. That is for sure. So, Total had been there for decades, and uh, it helped the community in the, in the pipeline areas through from, the, uh, from the oil uh, wells to the, to the place where they lay down the pipelines. They help the community, but uh, for France, Total is a very a huge company uh, providing a lot of revenue for the government. So pulling out Total from Myanmar is a big blow for the uh, for the uh, let's say capitalist uh, group people in in France. Because they would argue that no, Total uh, is recruiting and employing uh, fifty thousand people in Myanmar, and they would lose jobs if Total uh, pulls out. But they don't see that Total has been, or they see that, although they see that Total has been providing uh, a lot of uh, income to MOGE, Ministry of Oil and Gas Enterprise, but. Mm, they also want. I think they also want to uh, have the uh, foothold in compare in uh, competition to other oil companies, because there are some other oil companies working in Myanmar, and um, but finally they agreed to pull out. Mm -hmm, right. And during this uh, decision, as they were looking at whether to to stay in there and their 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 work, their, the, 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 as you mentioned, the oil revenue provides a great resource for the military regime, which then can use that to purchase weapons and other things to use against their own people. Uh, I'm curious about the relationship between Total to the French government and it, where the French government was in wanting to influence uh, what Total was doing, if they were putting pressure on them to leave or if they were looking at ways to have them stay or where, what, what people in the French government were saying and reacting to Total's presence after the coup. Uh, fortunately, that was the time when uh, we had a big uh, 
demand that total should leave the country uh, to let the french people know about myanmar but after that it died out because the news from uh, ukraine has overshadowed mm. the news of myanmar mm. Mm. Right. but even then now uh, not many people talk about ukraine here yeah people have a short attention span that's that's yes, for sure yes yeah so as someone who has been in diplomatic circles for so long um between myanmar and france especially other countries i'm sure as well uh since the coup happened there has been a real discussion of legitimacy of who is actually the rightful representatives of myanmar and that has played out in the United Nations and ASEAN, but also in embassies around the world. Who is actually controlling these embassies? Is it uh, sympathizers with the regime or people that are close with NUG or democracy movement? Uh, this can be somewhat confusing for outside observers to understand how are represent representatives chosen by international community and bodies? Uh, how are things verified? So can you break down a bit what has been the struggle since the coup to determine who is the legitimate representatives in diplomatic circles uh, among those trying to represent Myanmar to the outside world. Mm -hmm. Like uh, you want to say the uh, representatives um, from the NUG? Well, let's let's look first at, uh, at embassies. Let's look at, uh, and I guess we could start locally with you because you're in France. And then look at wider Europe, because obviously the Myanmar embassy in London is, has been quite uh, interesting mm -hmm. in what happened there. Yes. But just in terms of the embassies itself, how is it determined uh, who, um, which people working at the embassies, where their allegiances actually lie? Oh, some of the uh, embassy staff, uh, Myanmar embassy staff, went for the civil disobedience uh, movement. Some do not. And some ambassadors, for example, uh, the Myanmar ambassador in France, he uh, did not observe the uh, civil disobedience, disobedience movement, but we cannot say that he is uh, totally uh, pro-military or he is, uh, whether he is a pro-democratic uh, um, movement, because he is just uh, sitting, we call it sitting on the fence. And he was not recalled yet. And he had not been uh, re uh, replaced by any uh, military uh, personnel yet. I call it yet, because they can be for the posts like uh, US and UK, there are a lot of uh, shuffles. He is a uh, career diplomat. He had never been in the military service. But there are people who would say that, oh, don't go and approach him because we can never uh, trust him. So I don't, I don't contact him. And... Uh, we never know whether he would report anything to, back to the regime or he would be just doing his uh, regular uh, diplomatic um, uh, diplomat's uh, job. But it is very likely that he would be reporting what's going on here. 
especially there are some um, Burmese people who fled the country, some journalists, some photographers who fled the country and they are here. They are uh, covered by the French uh, government on uh, special uh, conditions. And it is through the uh, uh, individual efforts of each embassy. I think uh, it depends also on the head of the mission and also by the government. Although they may not be uh, openly speaking that we recognize NUG, it is, I think, uh, very political, I would say, that uh, it goes beyond the uh, diplomatic uh, procedures. It goes up to the uh, superpowers like who is on the side of China, who is on the side of Russia, who is on the side of US and so on. So I think France is playing a safe game. Like they would hover those who fled the country from Myanmar, they would be given special visas here. They would be give, they would be asked, uh, they would, sorry, they would be provided uh, some uh, allowances like social security and special uh, uh, privileges, and some immunities here. Although they may not be given as a refugee status, but uh, it is it has been ongoing since last year. There's no clear cut. There's no clear cut uh, uh, decision like oh we recognize NUG, we don't recognize this embassy, no. Because uh, they also care for the ambassador residing in Myanmar, because the ambassador has been there since uh, before, I think it's since uh, the time of Dong San Suu Kyi, because he handed over the credentials to her, uh, to, to Uwe Min, the, the, the president. So, if something um, happens, to him, if 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 there's if there's any uh, penalty or some kind of a harsh uh, treatment uh, to the to the Myanmar diplomat in France, uh, the retaliation would uh, be given to the Fr French ambassador in Yangon, and I think they are quite concerned about that. I think all embassies are quite concerned about that. Yeah, I've, I've heard similarly. And in the case of the French ambassador in Myanmar, I've heard that he's really been one of the most outspoken critics of the regime, even and supporters of the democracy movement, even while still serving as an ambassador there. Mm -hmm. uh, how much do you know about his activities and, and the stance that he's taken there in Yangon? Uh, before the coup and uh, the early days after the coup, in my impression, he underestimated the impact of uh, brutality and uh, the uh, unlawful acts by the junta. But then I explained him many things, including the need to provide R2P, because we foresee that the civil war or so-called the uh, PDF against the uh, military council would come to the country one day. 
although at that time we cannot figure out in what kind of uh, institution would be formed, but uh, gradually we see that the PDFs were formed. But at that stage, he was not very convinced that uh, the, the result of the uh, coup would be so negative. But more months, <coughs> after more months, some more months he discovered and he realized that things are not going well. So I think he's very uh, helpful and uh, standing for the, and he stands for the activists and he's very outspoken because he sees things how it happened before him right. and he himself went out and uh, welcomed the uh, demonstrators right in front of the embassy I think he is one of the rare diplomats who went out and welcomed those uh, demonstrators personally. Mm. So going back to the question of Myanmar embassies around the world, uh, <clears throat> I wonder if you're aware of any one serving ambassador or otherwise who is working at a Myanmar embassy somewhere in the world and openly supporting the democratic movement and the um, and and not standing for the regime, or or is that not really happening? Are people either silent or supporting the military? Myanmar yeah, ambassadors, and right ambassadors or other high ranking staff. Mm. I don't see anyone except for Ucho Moton from UN. Mm. Mm -hmm. Are you as the UN representative of Myanmar? No. No, no. So he is the only one that really stands out as yes. having yes. really broken from what the military did. Can you, for those mm -hmm. listeners who might not be aware of him and how significant this moment was, can you tell us who Chamotun is and what exactly he did that put him on the map? On the uh, At the moment, he spoke about Myanmar on his uh, at his very first speech at UN. We were thrilled and uh, we were really touched by his uh, response and uh, we were so much encouraged uh, to see that someone very important and high-ranking like him uh, supported the democratic movements and the people of Myanmar. And we didn't mm. expect that a very uh, ordinary uh, diplomat in his during his career because he was not a very outstanding person uh, when I was uh, in the service. <clears throat> so, but gradually he reached uh, to that uh, position uh, and and uh, that was uh, due to the promotions uh, given during Aung San Suu Kyi and uh, women's time. I think uh, he really felt that he should do something for us. Because uh, in the past, he was known as a very quiet but very kind person. 
And after that happened, I remember some writers speculating that that will go down as one of the more important moments in United Nations history. It was a very emotional speech he gave Mm -hmm. in the United Nations uh, supporting the democracy movement for something that has been that significant to looking at in a historical context of the speech that was made, did it really have any impact uh, since making that talk has, has did, did it result in anything that substantial we can look at that might not have happened if he hadn't have taken that stance? Oh yes, of course. It is a turning point for NUG, for PD, for all of us. Hmm. How so? Uh, because it it is like very uh, because he's in in a very important position, and uh, a person at that position is on the side of the democratic uh, uh, movement. Uh, then it is not nothing else but uh, the m- most encouraging thing for all of us. Because he is uh, placed at a very uh, pivotal uh, role, and uh, he is playing for us uh, on our side. Now, another significant event that happened in the diplomatic world happened last year at the Myanmar Embassy in London. Can you share a bit about what happened there and why it was significant? Joseph Amin, the then ambassador, was also a person who was sitting on the fence. He did not uh, uh, observe the CDM movement, but uh, he's, he, and not only that, he's also very close to the, uh, he is also from the military uh, group. He, he was not the uh, career diplomat. But anyhow, he had been serving in UK for some time, and uh, he wanted to continue as his. That is the impression we got, because uh, we don't really know what his uh, feelings are. But uh, we had a feeling that he wanted to continue his service as the ambassador, and uh, but at the same time, he didn't follow the CDM movement. But when we heard, when he heard that the military attaché would be replaced uh, as the ambassador, then he uh, started um, the CDM movement, and it was then that uh, he was uh, he was locked out from the embassy. <laughs> but not many people uh, pity him as a reaction of his uh, situation there. So it was the pro-military people in the embassy who locked him out of his office while he yes. was at lunch. Yes. And what what did the, how did the London police or government respond to this? What, what happened when there's this kind of internal strife mm-hmm. at an embassy, what is the proper response of what the host country could or should do? Of course, the host country has the uh, duty to protect the diplomat. Mm-hmm. So I think the London police controlled the mob uh, and the curious, uh, the curiosity of the people who gathered around the embassy, and uh, 
I think they did not. Uh, but when I saw the footage of the video clips, they did not uh, break through the doors of the embassy. But the London police just uh, tried and not uh, tried not to have a public. Uh, uh, disorder at that place. And what's the status of that that uh, ambassador now? Uh, he's still there. He's still there. So he was locked out temporarily, but then he was able to go back and retake control. I have no other uh, information on London. But uh, it's it is like a parallel ambassador, the military appointed uh, military attaché who is named as the uh, ambassador, and uh, Joshua Min, who was named by, who was nom- who was accredited by uh, women, the democratic mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. I have no other information on that. Right. I suppose it must be really difficult and really confusing for a lot of these diplomats, who many of whom came through the democratic period and the NLD and were representing the country uh, in in that capacity following uh, in, in the period of the democratic transition. Mm-hmm. And then you have a military regime that illegally takes over power mm-hmm. and declares itself the new rulers, but are not seen legitimate by anyone in the country. They violate a democratic process. And they're also not seen legitimate as most countries outside with the exception of someone like Russia, Belarus, China, etc. Mm-hmm. And so these diplomats, I, I imagine it must be a somewhat confusing situation for them to be in where they are still representing the country as a whole, but this question of legitimacy of who actually is controlling it and, and thereby who controls the country is also the official uh, messenger of, of uh, through the embassies and the diplomats that that are representing them. And, and so it's, uh, it just, it, it kind of, as someone who hasn't really spent a lot of time in diplomatic circles, it, it makes me wonder what happens when these diplomats around the world find themselves in that position and what, how they, uh, where they're supposed to put their allegiances to and how they make that decision. Yes. Uh, that is a very good question. And, uh, mm. and this is the question we've been asking among ourselves uh, over and over again. And we want, we don't understand why the uh, entire world, especially the democratic countries, do not recognize the national uh, unity gov- un- uh, unity government (NUG), and why they are still uh, acknowledging the uh, uh, military council in one way or the other. The what we heard as the explanation from certain diplomats we've met is that because there's no uh, territorial occupation by NUG. And I think it is the most unreasonable uh, answer because how can one imagine the uh, NUG to occupy the territory? Because once they come go back into the territory, they will be arrested and they will be executed. They can only be the government in exile. Mm-hmm. 
That is the only excuse we always hear. Like, oh, there's no territorial occupation. Of course not. So it is like a tug of war between NUG and you, you may see that uh, Zema Aung, the Ministry of Foreign, Minister for Foreign Affairs of NUG, has been repeatedly uh, demanding for the recognition. This issue of territory is really interesting on a couple of levels. So one thing to mention is that it, it is not true to say that the NUG, or if you want to say the, the allied forces, the EAOs, the PDFs, uh, however you want to call that coalition or different anti-military groups. It's not a true statement to say that they do not hold ground. They do not hold territory. There mm -hmm. are constantly statistics coming up uh, showing how much territory they actually control. And I guess you can define what control is. But in some of those cases, the PDFs uh, and by extension the NUG control some territory to the extent that they're able to have schools and other yes. functions that they carry out. Yes. And the percentages vary. Any I've heard anywhere from you know, 33 to 66%, just to yes. put a number in there. Mm -hmm. But it, it's, it's not a correct statement to say that they don't hold territory in mm -hmm. the whole of Myanmar. If you oh. want to say they don't hold cities or they don't hold capitals, okay, that's fair. Of but course. they do hold territory. Yes. Uh, that is uh, why we are not very uh, pleased with the international community's reaction on Myanmar. We are not happy. We are not happy with the with the reaction by the international community. It is like uh, the international community is uh, letting the whole uh, nation vanish by neglecting us in different ways. And the second part of that thing about territory, which doesn't really make sense or is problematic, is the corollary of that statement that they don't hold territory is really an implicit suggestion that by hook, by hook or by crook, by violence or any other means, if you or really any group were to take and hold that territory, then you would be legitimate by virtue of having that territory in hand. Mm -hmm. And so over time, uh, we've seen PDF groups and EAOs and NUG leadership begin to realize that rather than following the normal procedures of mm -hmm. trying to build alliances or mm -hmm. talk to international partners, build coalitions, uh, that they simply need to find a way by any means necessary to take this territory. Of course, Myanmar is not getting any support, uh, nothing like Ukraine. Uh, no. there's, they've had to manage everything by themselves against a professional-grade yeah. military, which sources from China and Russia and other yeah. places. And they have been put in a corner where they have had to rely on untrained citizenry to yeah. be able to try to retake and then hold land in the hope that if they can do so, then perhaps they might receive some legitimacy. But yeah. the problem with this is that as soon as, because all of these negotiations, discussions, ask for support, R2P, et cetera, because everything has failed so 
devastatingly and dramatically, mm-hmm. they have been forced to take up an arm resistance and to be able to uh, to to resist the military and protect their uh, their communities in this way. And as that arm resistance has begun to build, then there's been quite a bit of criticism for well, both sides are doing this, and uh, and we we don't want to see a resort to violence on either end. And so there's this, it seems to me, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are and your position of having been in diplomatic circles, there seems to be this contradictory kind of attitude where on one hand, it's, well, if you if you take and control land, then you have some kind of legitimacy, mm-hmm. but then you have this mixed message on the other hand saying that violence should never be resorted to for any reason and that you should try to let uh, diplomacy and conversation and negotiation try to succeed and that there's been growing concern that uh, by by any side that tries to um, that is uh, is not being nonviolent in, in, in every yeah. method. And so, yeah, what do you think about that? Okay, uh, first I will uh, answer the uh, second part that uh, that is about uh, nonviolence and uh, negotiations. So, if you look back the uh, chroni- uh, the chronicles of our 2021, uh, we call it a uh, spring revolution. In the first days and months, the uh, demonstrators were protesting peacefully on the streets. They were, e- they, you will even, even see the uh, images of demonstrators kneeling before the armed soldiers, giving flowers or pleading them uh, in a nice way. And uh, they went out on the streets in uh, different uh, groups of uh, community, showing their just showing their um, their their strong suggestion of you know strong uh, opposition. Sorry, strong opposition of the military rule. But gradually, when the days uh, went by, the military group started by shooting uh, with sniper guns to the girls and later on to the into the crowd more killings followed and uh, as a human being you can you will you will never be able to discuss at that time peaceful discussion is out of the question when the other party started using aggressive arms so everybody even though it is a norm that negotiations on the table should take place nobody would uh, accept that you know it is time to negotiate because the time to negotiate has passed because of the uh, the uh, breach of trust from the military side it showed the active uh, the actions from the military showed that we can never trust them and the time for a dialogue is over so even though there are practices like very classic uh, conventional practices like uh, discussing through ASEAN and UN and so on so and he, you you also saw that Mei Hong did not respect all the five uh, points 
proposed by ASEAN until now. So discussing discussion or dialogue is out of the question. The only um, the only option for the people is to retaliate through the guns. So we cannot stop PDF to fight against the military regime. And it is, the, I think, it is the only language that the military would understand. It is, mm. of course, uh, not complying or not in conformity to any uh, diplomatic relations or to diplomatic norms. And these democratic forces have been forced in a corner where this is the only way to respond, and yet there's been virtually no outside support and mm -hmm. even very little sympathy or understanding for mm -hmm. why they're doing what they're doing. No sympathy from uh, the international community? It seems to me, right, that yes. there hasn't yes. been... Hmm. It's true. No uh, sympathy, no uh, empathy, I would say. Hmm. And uh, they, they they don't care how how many uh, people are caught, how many people are killed a day, even though we've been uh, sharing news and uh, we've been crying out uh, in many ways around the world. No, uh, they would just let us, uh, for example, in places like New York or or in uh, Tokyo or in Singapore or. They would let us do whatever demonstrations, even in France. They would let us do the uh, demonstrations, expression of our uh, feelings, but that's it. Hmm. So what do you think it would take to break through? This is a question I often ask myself, you know, to... I, I feel like we're in this echo chamber where those of us who care about what's happening in Myanmar continue to talk to each other over and over on loop. And we need to break out of that. We need to talk to people outside of the community of those who care about Myanmar and reach people who should care about human rights and democracy and progressive values everywhere in the world to try to find an angle to bring to them what's happening, why it's important, whether that's yes. government or media or different progressive groups. It's what I've been trying to do through this podcast or through other means, mm -hmm. but it just seems like no matter how terrible the story and not just the stories, but the pictures, the videos, the testimonial, the interview, everything else, all of this information is there, whether it's documented, documented from human rights organizations, whether it's told through a personal story or narrative, whether it's a, a shocking or cruel video that shows an act of atrocity taking place. Mm -hmm. It just seems like it, it is so hard to break through. For and, and when one does break through, it's only for something really terrible happens. It might just be for a few hours or however short a news cycle mm -hmm. is these days, and then it moves on. So what, what do you think it takes to try to break through that and really make this be an issue that people care about and are sustained for a longer period of time? Oh, people, uh, I would answer in a different way. Uh, people would be happy to see that the perpetrators are taken to justice. And 
the only justice uh, that can uh, uh, take action is through the international courts. We've been we had been very hopeful when last year we had we heard that the Supreme Court of Argentina is going to uh, uh, open a case of against male lie and so on. So why I don't know why and where that uh, procedure is going and where how far has it come? We have no idea about it. We just heard some uh, sparks of hope and then it went silent. So people would be very uh, happy and uh, would be relieved to because they are uh, it's like they are holding their breath while they are being drowned. So we don't know how long people can uh, stand to the pressure in addition to the economic and uh, health uh, pressures, the inflation, everything, they are living nothing else but with hope. So that the ray of hope can be given and only through the international uh, justice system. It will be the only solution to save many lives from being killed and and millions of uh, dollars or chats being spent on supporting uh, buying arms for PDF and many lives killed on PDF side. The sooner, uh, the sooner the uh, the justice has been brought to the perpetrators, the better for the country. And going back to this issue of territory, it also reminds me of this recent controversial statement by Dr. Sasa, or actually I should say it's a, something he said that became controversial, uh, which what, where he referenced in a, a Zoom meeting that if they were to, if the democratic forces were to take over Yangon, the guns would come raining down. And that, that statement, uh, I should say it's a alleged statement because I don't know if there's a recording. I think it's been reported, but I'm not sure exactly what he said in the context, but that's how it's been relayed. And it's been criticized from a number of different angles. One for being, for, for promoting, uh, an armed struggle to try to take a city and saying mm -hmm. that, that once they do support would come, it's also been criticized by those in the PDFs for, for being naive in yes. terms of believing that international support would actually come or could no. ever come. No, no. Uh, but what are, what are your thoughts on, on that statement and the reaction that it's caused? I think, uh, it's absurd because, uh, and it is, uh, it has no grounds. Uh, How so? No, no, no. Because as you said, it, it has not been voice recorded and uh, we never know whether it is authentic or not. Uh, but we have come this far and we have seen that there is no uh, international support, especially uh, to support in terms of uh, arms and ammunitions. We cannot, so it, it shows that we should not expect uh, that the Yangon, once the PDF take hold of the Yangon, there would be more uh, international uh, support on arms and ammunitions. I don't think it is uh, relevant.
but it does seem that there's this hypocrisy coming from the West that is supporting, uh, it, at least as, as they say it, is ostentious, is, um, i say it again, is that the West is supporting through their voice democratic institutions and demo- democratic processes. And yet when this military is illegally seized power and there is an attempt to have a, to use these international agencies and ideals of democracy to, uh, to try to find a solution, there's complete silence and a lack of support. And, and that the only way to get that support or to be seen as legitimate is to bypass these democratic institutions and processes which these countries hold so dear and which they spend so much time talking about mm-hmm. and to just physically retake the land. Yeah. And it just becomes this brute action that needs to be taken when those democratic ideals have all been shown to uh, really to, to dissipate and float away. Uh, it's a very uh, confusing uh, situation. Maybe you have read in very uh, recently from the Norwegian uh, uh, journal, news journal, about the um, misbehavior of the Norwegian embassy in Yangon. It shows that the Norwegian embassy or Norwegian Norway is known to be the country very uh, helpful to the uh, democratic movements. That is the country which has the uh, Nobel Peace Prize uh, awards to the <coughs> to the uh, people in the world, and we have we have had high respects on Norway. But when we uh, we saw that uh, in that article written by the Norwegian uh, news that the embassy itself has been using the premises of a Lotte Hotel, which is owned by the military mm-hmm. uh, general's son, who himself right. is also a military general, mm-hmm. uh, on uh, Pier Road, and spending a lot of um, uh, dollars on renting the place. We cannot understand, and we don't know who to rely on or who to, uh, who to ask for help. When a country who is which is known for very uh, democratic, uh, who is which is known for a high value of uh, democracy, is behaving like this, and even Australia, maybe you can go back and check the Australia and the Australian embassy. At the same time, uh, Australia has been uh, welcoming and giving visas to those. Uh, who fled the country and also uh, to the skilled workers because knowing that the country is uh, deteriorating in terms of uh, economy and uh, job opportunity, they employed a lot of uh, people from Myanmar and give uh, work visas. But at the same time, the embassy, Australian embassy is using millions of dollars at that Lotte Hotel. So it, it so it is very uh, difficult to understand the reaction of the diplomatic missions and the government back home uh, in their country. Luckily, 
France is not behaving like this. America is not behaving like this. Mm. German, no. British, I don't know, really, because the British ambassador had been uh, asked uh, to leave the country because they mm. uh, stepped down the level from the ambassador to charge it up So, big countries like uh, Australia and Norway became uh, under our attention as the uh, black, for for us it's a blacklist country because once they start using thousands, I think millions of dollars into this uh, hotel, and how can we trust them? And then there's Japan that invited. Oh, Japan. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, no, no. Go on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, tell us what Japan did. Oh, Japan has been hosting the uh, military trainees still. Mm -hmm. Even though the Japanese uh, journalist has been uh, detained, they are still holding the uh, military trainings uh, to the Myanmar military personnel in their country. And uh, all the activists, including those uh, Myanmar living in Japan, are uh, protesting against uh, the government not to receive the or to uh, send the military personnel back home. They do not care. And uh, Japan is all, just interested in the economy and their business and their money. That's all. Hmm. That's so that is, the, that is the slogan. Uh, the uh, PDFs or the or the uh, democratic uh, uh, movement used to say that we only have us for us. <laughs> mm-hmm. One yeah. can understand why. Yeah. We don't know who to turn our uh, back on. And you reference these Burmese who are living abroad in countries around the world, um, just as we talked about the somewhat confusing situation for diplomats who leave Myanmar representing what they think is the rightful leadership at one time, and then that leadership is replaced and they have to figure out how to navigate that way. You also have a number of Burmese who are abroad for all kinds of reasons, whether their families have settled there or they're studying or Mm -hmm. working something temporarily, whether they're exiles or refugees, whether they left since the coup because they were in danger. But but one of the problems that's been developing uh, in the last few months we've been hearing quite a bit about is the challenge of Burmese whose passports have expired and they need mm-hmm. to go into the Burmese embassy to get yeah. new passports. And many, in many cases, those are no longer being issued. And so mm-hmm. many Burmese are becoming stateless. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about what you know about this? Oh, I have heard that uh, the embassy, uh, the embassies around the world received instruction from the military council not to issue uh, or uh, ex- extend new passports uh, or the validity of the passport to certain people and it amounts to 80,000 persons. This is mm. this is the rumor I heard and back home in Myanmar 
the passport uh, renewal or the uh, delivery the issuance of new passports are first uh, filtered through the names that are already uh, listed in the immigration office or the ministry of home of home home affairs first if you and nobody is going through the uh, uh, proper procedures they are also they are all going through the brokers the brokers are the ones who would uh, bribe the officer in charge of the ba- uh, passport uh, delivery and uh, at the passport office the officers would be in rotation nobody would be sitting at the same desk for long because they would be taking a lot of uh, bribery and uh, they would be in connection with the brokers so whoever the officer would be would be there the broker would bribe the the officer and uh, he would ask more money from the uh from the applicant passport applicant for example in the a few weeks of earlier the brokerage was like uh, th- 30 uh, 350000 chats now it has gone up to 500000 chats and uh, if you apply for the passport the first thing they would uh, check is whether your name is in the list and it is like a feasibility test <laughs> mm-hmm. so if i want to uh, apply for the passport then they would say okay let me check if your name is there and before my name was checked i have to give all my uh, personal data my name my national identity number my address uh, my family list so whether uh, before i was uh, given the positive or negative answer they have already got all my information right mm. so they're becoming spy agencies abroad yes and uh, when you apply or when you uh, extend your passport validity in the Myanmar embassy the procedure is more or less the same you have to fill up a form and you have to provide all your personal data and then they will reply that okay your name is not in the uh, list so we will provide you with a passport and please come back on so and so so and so date that is what they would do and they would answer now yeah this has become quite dangerous for many burmese oh, yes. <laughs> living abroad and not knowing how their embassy is trying to report on them and mm-hmm. in one case i have a burmese friend who's in thailand now and is completely unable to extend her passport which is expiring yes. and so right. has to fly back to yangon and mm-hmm. do it there but then obviously has to ta- undertake all kinds of safety precautions of not mm-hmm. knowing obviously when you go back to Myanmar now as a Burmese citizen you're you're there's no guarantee of your basic human rights or safety and so yes this has and become quite perilous there is no guarantee either whether you would be uh, issued a passport or not for example i have a friend who asked for the he, she is not at all involved in any politics but she just wanted to have a valid passport so that she can leave the country whenever she wants 
and she applied for the passport uh, with the bribery, with the uh, increased uh, rate of bribery from mm -hmm. 350,000 to 500,000 sets. Mm -hmm. And yet she was given the answer that, oh yes, your uh, passport has been approved and we know your passport number already, but the book, the passport, the, the document has not been given to her yet. So mm -hmm. until and unless she receives the passport in her hand, she cannot be relieved whether she would be really having the passport or not. Mm. I've heard there's been some talk within the NUG of trying to remedy the situation by issuing their own passports. Yes. Is that yes. something that's even possible? Yes. Uh, it depends on uh, which NUG uh, representative office is saying. Like some, uh, I think very outstanding NUG office is in Czech, Czech Republic, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because the Czech government is very supportive Great. to NUG. And uh, they let whatever NUG do in terms of uh, administration and the uh, formalities. So the Myanmar exiles in uh, Czech are quite uh, in the, quite uh, free to do whatever they want to do. So that's one country out of several hundred in the world yes, where yes, yes. Burmese yes. living have some kind of guarantee. But for mm -hmm. those living in other places, can is I don't know how diplomatic it depends on the, work. It depends on the host government. Like in Japan, it would be very mm -hmm. difficult. Uh, France, uh, I don't think they would be given the... Uh, they would have the uh, power to issue like a issue like passports or any mm -hmm. other travel documents uh, equivalent to passport. But uh, US, I I don't think so. Mm, it, it, it depends on each uh, host government. Right. So in many cases, these people just simply become stateless. They, they have a choice of either trying to go back to Myanmar and disrupting their life and perhaps family and occupation, livelihood where they are and going into a place where there's no guarantee for safety anywhere or becoming yeah. illegal, stateless in some way, or depending on the host country, hoping, praying, they can apply for some kind of, of status where they're able to continue their life there. So this is really an enormous difficulty on tens of thousands and yes, perhaps yes, more. Yes, yes. Mm. Uh, for example, those in Sweden, they were, I know some people were already in Sweden and uh, they are given a special document that uh, they are allowed to stay legally in Sweden but they cannot travel outside of Sweden. It's not a refugee but uh, mm. it's not a refugee status but something like a legal uh, stay permit status. And same in, it's the same in uh, France I think. Mm -hmm. They are not given because uh, we know there are some people who arrived after the spring revolution and uh, they were given special status. They were given uh, social uh, benefits, special social benefits. 
but uh, they are not given a French passport or any uh, other travel document. But they are not considered as a refugee either. So it's a very uh, delicate and complicated uh, administrative matter. As long as the host country is uh, okay with the status of that person who is uh, living in the country, the person can stay freely and legally and enjoying all the rights, but they may not be able to go back to Myanmar. They may not be traveled to other country. Hmm. Right, that's, that's tough. Uh, yeah, that's tough. We've talked about the Myanmar embassies around the world. Uh, another thing that's cropping up are NUG offices. These are not so much diplomatic institutions. They're certainly not recognized as embassies. But the NUG has been able to establish different offices in a handful of countries around the world where they've appointed official representatives of the NUG to be able to represent their interests. What, what do you know about this? Uh, the uh, NUG representative office offices around the world, like in uh, Japan, Korea, Australia, uh, Czech, France, and I, I'm not sure about U.S., because U.S. has Ucho Moton and other uh, prominent figures. So some uh, energy offices are very active and quite uh, uh, quite strong in terms of uh, their capacity to, to reach out to the uh, host governments. I think the strongest is from Czech because of the host country's uh, flexibility and its uh, welcoming gestures to, towards the Myanmar democratic movement. And Australia, France, not so. In the past, yes, but uh, gradually now it has uh, faded away. And it was just holding some uh, occasional uh, gathering of Myanmar people in living in France uh, or for some uh, uh, activities to show the support or to protest against uh, certain causes. Mm-hmm. Because the problem is, or the weakness is that NUG could not finance those offices and the representatives. Those representatives had to find their own uh, way to survive and to run the office. This again points to this hypocrisy of places like Australia or uh, Norway renting very expensive hotels in Yangon where millions of dollars Mm -hmm. go towards the regime Mm -hmm. while single representatives and single offices in those countries those democratic countries are not able to be maintained for NUG representatives because there is simply no money. That's not even to touch upon the millions or perhaps billions. I don't remember the exact number Mm -hmm. of frozen money in the U S that the, uh, from the NLD that the NUG is not even able to access. No, no, it's a shame. It's a real shame. 
So concerning the um, situation with uh, just the, the diplomatic circles, looking at embassies and official channels, this has been mostly what we've talked about for, for this full chat, just because you're, you're in those circles, you have that information. Oh, yes, because the uh, diplomatic missions play the most important roles in uh, liberating a country from the oppression or uh, pulling the country down into oppression. Or it is like uh, the, uh, uh, I would like to quote Nelson Mandela's uh, famous uh, statement, like those who are ignorant about the oppression are also uh, those who are silent in times of oppression. And that's why it's been so valuable to be able to talk to you about the behind the scenes of the diplomatic missions to better understand how these mechanisms are actually working for those of us who've never had any interaction with that. Uh, so with that in mind, is, is there any anything else that about these diplomatic missions or processes or, or anything else uh, on that topic that you think would be interesting to share? Oh, sorry. I just want to correct. Uh, yes, it's from uh, Desmond Tutu. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. Yes, it's true. Um, so, the diplomatic uh, circle can play a very uh, vital role in helping shape the country's uh, development or its poverty or its uh, misfortune, whatever. Uh, first, I would like to say that the, the, I mean, the head of the mission or the whole diplomatic mission, the personal, the personalities recruited in the mission, uh, should be, according to my experience, huh? especially those who are in the political uh, roles. I'm not talking about the administrators like the other, you know, lower uh, level diplomats, but the top uh, level diplomats should be at least uh, ethical, first thing, ethical uh, and should be respectful because if they are not ethical, their reports towards the government would not, not be uh, genuine. And this is what I have also reminded to Dong San Suji myself. Some diplomats are not ethical and they are not hardworking. They rely on the their uh, staff members to give them reports because they have to write reports to their ministry and to the government regularly. And the content of the reports can vary uh, from the authenticity or the closeness to the truth to the totally uh, distorted ideas. For example, um, I have suggested to San Suji that she should check on the The uh, diplomatic heads of the diplomatic missions, 
and their and their fun uh, and how they function uh, their responsibilities because for example for uh, if the diplomatic uh, staff goes to a place a crisis place then uh, he would take notes and report back to the mission or to the head of mission it may vary if the head of mission himself goes there and takes, his, takes the note and report back to the mission. Because sometimes he's maybe so lazy or too busy to go to that place and he would uh, rather uh, delegate one of his staffs just to go there and take notes. And sometimes, or not sometimes, many times, that it makes a huge difference depending on the on the uh, preoccupied ideas of that person that person may be related or in in uh, in relation to certain people of the re of the place of the crisis place or he or she may have some uh, personal sentiments on this crisis and all these things can change the content of the report. And this report is very crucial for the government to decide on how to react to the situation. I think this is all underlying the importance that yes. the diplomatic missions and the people in those roles serve, especially uh, in the current moment. Yes. And, and not, mm -hmm. it, it is, I'm not talking about the current moment, but for the I have gone through many uh, uh, incidents that these uh, these contents uh, of the reports make the difference on the decision of the governments. I see. Mm. You said something really powerful a few minutes ago that the diplomatic missions, protocols, circles, these have an enormous responsibility to play in being able to prevent or at least diminish mm -hmm. oppression in other countries. And mm -hmm. so that does lead to looking at the present moment, looking at Myanmar, in my view, and I, I'm not, I'm, I don't have privileged access to behind the scenes, but in my view, it seems that on the diplomatic front, it's just been an enormous colossal failure. We've seen hypocrisy, we've seen yeah. action, we've seen undue criticism, a complete mm -hmm. lack of support. Mm -hmm. So from my standpoint of not really having the inside track, uh, admittedly, but from my standpoint, I would venture to say that these diplomatic circles, which have the ability to prevent or diminish oppression, mm -hmm. have been a massive colossal failure in the case of Myanmar since the coup. Yes. Would you say that I'm being unfair, or would you agree with that? Uh, especially uh, when I talk about the diplomatic uh, circle, it covers everyone, like China, Japan, mm. Russia, the Western Bloc, everyone. Mm. Yes. So you would assess they've been derelict in their responsibility? Yes. Mm. Is there anything that can be done about that? Is there any hope for change or for improvement? Mm. 
yeah they when they know that they have to they they are dancing according to the tunes of their governments so it depends it goes back to if it is for us it goes back to washington it, if it is for france it goes back to uh paris so if the government or the, the president is not showing interest in this affair then uh, they would be happy spending some time just uh, reporting regularly and uh, getting their very high paid salary and spending time in Myanmar going back mm-hmm. uh quite uh with a with a a fat big fat pocket of you know salary mm-hmm. <laughs> that would be the case but uh if the government shows uh, interest in uh in certain countries then uh, they would have to work really hard to in, to be in line uh with their government so, so it is it is not the uh, diplomats uh, it is not only on one side at the same time sure. as i said mm. it is the, the it is like uh two hands clapping uh together the mm-hmm. diplomats on one hand and the government on the other hand if the government shows interest in the country then the, the diplomat has to work hard and at the same time if the diplomat works really hard to impress or to give the impact his uh, uh, views on certain countries then i think it will give some significant um uh, impact on the government as well because he's the one uh, staying on the ground of the of the country uh, at the time of the situation or the time of the crisis and he is the one who is the eyewitness i would say and he could say everything back to his country Right. Well, it's distressing. <laughs> it's yeah. I, I'm at a loss for words. I I I was about to say let's hope for improvement or for a positive change, but those words just seem incredibly hollow and meaningless to say uh, in light of, uh, of of the kind of failures and hypocrisy we've seen. So I don't really know what to say. Yeah, but I think the world has changed from 90 what i see now is the world has changed uh, the world's trend has changed from 1980 to during from the years like 1988 to 2000 mm-hmm. something to mm-hmm. the present uh, era because everywhere i look starting from that uh, covid and the vaccines and everything the world is so uh, money obsessed every country especially the rich countries Japan US France or whatever you know they in my opinion they support Ukraine because the whole european bloc is scared that the war from ukraine would spread to the rest of the europe mm-hmm. and that is why they uh, support ukraine at the cost of ukraine and the other countries like japan 
far from Europe, a rich country. They support the Western Bloc because he wants to be in good business with the Western Bloc and he wants to be protected for himself from Russia, from China. That's it. And ASEAN, some uh, countries like Malaysia and Indonesia, they are speaking up about um, about uh, the democratic uh, movements and the failure from the Myanmar side not complying with their ASEAN uh, five points. Only it, it it only ends up in the air, and it's not substantial. Because they just wanted to uh, uphold the uh, legitimacy of uh, ASEAN. That's it. Otherwise, ASEAN, uh, the the community, ASEAN community would be uh, just uh, or just be standing for the namesake, just to save their name. They are saying something, I think. And some other countries like Brunei or uh, or Singapore, uh, once or twice, yes. Thai, no, not at all. So what do you think could happen reasonably that could make an impact and could shift things for the positive? Are there are there actions on a big or small level that would make you hopeful? To be honest, uh, we are we are hoping that the proposed uh, elections that will be. Uh, convened by May Online in early 2023 would not take place. And mm. that nobody would go and vote. And even some uh, polls would be destroyed by PDF or uh, other forces or by the people itself, themselves. And uh, we are depending a lot on the donation to PDF, but it is not enough that we all know. And I don't know what NUG's agenda is because NUG is quite uh, uh, far away from all of us because they have, they are just releasing their statements uh, but we don't know their agenda. The people do not know their agenda. It is quite... Uh, difficult to say at this moment what would come of uh, in... near future. I see. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I, I just want to refocus back on you and your experience. You're a Burmese who has come to find a second home in France. And I, I just have a question about that experience. Uh, as you've come to make a home in a community in France and you've 
gone from one culture to the other. I'm, I'm just curious what the experience has been like to be in a different culture and country and community like France and what you might say about the differences and the similarities between French society and Burmese society that you've been able to discover. Oh, the first thing uh, is because I I think because uh, France is um, is not a stranger to me. So mm. that is what one reason. And the another reason is because uh, I have some uh, contacts here and we, that makes me easier to come here. And But when I came here, I, unlike the past where I, when I was involved in the liaison work, I felt the discrimination by the French, uh, French community because uh, I sense that because I look like a Chinese. Uh, mm. So to them, uh, Chinese are the ones who brought the COVID, who are exploiting their economy, and they 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 don't seem to like me. And another thing is, uh, it's a it, it, France has a huge community of African people, mm-hmm. and those African peoples dominate a lot of uh, areas in France, and for them. I think it's safer for us, for uh, safer than us, for the, the the African community. They speak French. They have, uh, and they have a huge community. They have big families here, and they have their own community. So, the the native French dare not uh, touch those people, but for us, like yellow skinned people. They would look down on us, uh, as, or they would, uh, they would be racist. They they think that like uh, Asians are here for working as you know uh, domestics or the uh, or the uh, low paid jobs. They started. I, I find them very different than the time I was here as the. Uh, Diplomat, because I don't. Yeah, I, I mean in general, no? I'm not not uh, to particular persons. Those who know sure. me very well, of course, we we have a very good relations. Yes. Mm, so it's been a bit hard for you to adjust after the coup. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hmm. I'm I'm sorry to hear that. That highlights another challenge with how the coup has been impacting in, in, impacting Burmese everywhere inside and outside the country. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry if I have some uh, interruptions uh, in between oh, and no. some uh, lack of uh, some uh, sometimes I uh, I run out of vocabulary and uh, oh, it, no, it's, it's okay. kind of um, I'm also uh, suffering from uh, you know mental health problems mm. after the coup when I that's, this is my personal uh, personal experience. When I first came here, the, the place I lived was near to the airport. So quite often during the day, I would hear 
planes flying over the sky, but when and where and they they are low flying. And I heard the and the 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 planes flying over me, and I would think of oh no, where are they going to bomb the villages, or you know where are they going to bomb? <laughs> in fact, I was just traumatized. And I sure. had to tell myself, oh, no, no, I'm in France. Uh, they are just commercial planes. They are just going their own way. Uh, you are not, I, I'm not, not supposed to worry for anything. And if I have to tell to myself again and again, but every time I heard the planes flying, I had the same reaction in the first place. So it is not very good. And another thing is that when I see people, you know, enjoying life, like very normal in their parks, with their children, yeah. having everyday life, I cannot stand the sight of them for nothing. Mm. <laughs> because I would be thinking about the kids back in Myanmar where they have to run for their lives when they died and when they, yeah. and there's no chance to go to school and so yeah. on. So, you know. Yeah. And when we, when we see the people uh, last year, especially protesting for no vaccination against COVID, and they they would be shouting like "Liberty, Liberty," which means liberty, freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just wanted to send them to Myanmar, go and shout for liberty. You know, <laughs> they are making yeah. a big issue for just for the vaccines. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same way. And that's, that was what led to my question about how to break through is I see these so called progressive groups Mm -hmm. uh, advocating for different causes and rights in the United States. And, and and they just don't lift a finger for an awareness or a concern about what's happening that is multitudes order Mm -hmm. worse in Myanmar. And I start to feel this growing frustration yeah. and, and even fury yeah. against the hypocrisy, not of these big organi- or, or big international organizations, which I never really expected mm-hmm. much more of. I'm, I'm, of course, very disappointed, but the hypocrisy of different Western progressive groups that are espousing these ideals and values mm-hmm. and continuing to rally online about whatever... Uh, cause or microaggressions or triggers that they want to promote in terms of uh, advocating uh, or, or highlighting some kind of victimization in Western society that uh, that is so outrageous and atrocious. And yet these same groups are, are just not lifting a finger to have the slightest interest mm. or awareness or concern for things yeah. that are, are just atrocious over there. And it yeah. just, uh, it, it's made me really not take any of them seriously and just think like, how, how do you even dare to pretend like you care about these things mm-hmm. when this is happening right here? You have so much access to information and, and you're just standing by. Yeah. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah. Hmm. Well, with that, I, I thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to talk about these topics. We've been able to have some insight into the importance in the world of diplomatic circles. And it's been very educational for me, I think also for our listeners. And uh, thank you for also sharing about your personal journey. I'm, I'm sorry that so many of us are going through this now. Thanks thank you for very much. spending uh, these two hours with us. 
thank you very much to you also for giving me the chance to talk to our generous supporters who have already given. We simply cannot continue to provide you with this content and information without the wonderful support of generous listeners, donors, and friends like you. Each episode helps in providing access to one more voice, one more perspective, one more insight. Every donation of any size is greatly appreciated and it helps us to continue this mission. We greatly appreciate your generosity, which allows us to maintain this platform and everything else we do. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, food for impoverished communities, military defection campaigns, undercover journalists, monasteries and nunneries, education initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.